Good morning and welcome to Echoes of Calvary. This is your host, Greg Sweeting. Thank you for opening your home to us this morning. I invite you to now open your hearts and worship with us as we share from the Word of God. Stay with us as we share comments and illustrations with a spiritual application, present special music to call us to worship, and in a few minutes, Pastor Alan Lee will come to share insights from Scripture and explain how to apply God's Word that we might grow to be complete in Christ. I was surely moved by his testimony. I do not recall his name, but I do remember that he was from the Congo. He told of how he was traveling along a road by a river one day in his country when he was accosted by a large group of armed young men who had mistaken him for someone from another tribe. They grabbed a hold of him and began debating among themselves in front of him how they were going to kill him. Perhaps they did not realize that he understood every word that they spoke. Perhaps they did and couldn't care. He says that they discussed shooting him, stabbing him, and then they settled on strangling him, tossing him in the nearby river, and letting people assume that the river had taken his life. They removed his shirt, preparing to use it to strangle him, when he raised his voice above the rabble and the babble and told his captors that he was ready to die, but requested that he be allowed to pray one last time before he died. The renegades were thrown off balance, it would appear. They agreed. So the unfortunate prisoner, without his shirt, bowed his head and prayed out loud. The substance of his prayer was that he thanked God for his love, his mercy, and especially now for allowing him to die in this way, with his life taken by his own countrymen, and for being in a position where he was ready to die and be taken to heaven. When he finished and opened his eyes, he was shocked to see a group of about 30 young men gathered around him in a circle and were listening intently to his prayer. His admission that he was of the same tribe as they and that he was ready and prepared to die did something miraculous. This man from the Congo that I've been talking about, by being allowed to pray before his execution, had revealed his tribe was not of the tribe that they had assumed, and because he was ready to die anyway, had all so impressed his captors that they fought with each other over who would be allowed to give him his shirt back and to help him put it on again. Obviously, they let him live. He didn't say whether any of the rebels had been converted to Christianity, but his story in itself was amazing. His conclusion, God is still having work for him to do, and so his life had been spared. He now lives in the UK. I saw him give his testimony on the Songs of Praise program on the BBC. The program was recorded for Palm Sunday. It was broadcasted on that Sunday. They played his testimony immediately after the passage of Scripture that tells of the agony Jesus suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prayed for the cup to pass from him. But he said, not his will, God's will should prevail. Then they showed a beautiful cathedral with a congregation singing that lovely hymn in which one of the verses says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If only Christians could live like that all of the time.
And now with this message for today, here's Senior Pastor Emeritus, Alan Lee. Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ once again. Today is the third message in a series of messages that will take us to Father's Day. As you know, we stated this series on Mother's Day. And we began with a statement or proposition which we have derived from the overall teaching of the Word of God. That statement or proposition is that the divine purpose for marriage is to show what God is like and to provide personal fulfillment for husband and wife. Now we have completed our preliminary study of the principles on the first part of this proposition. And so today we begin to take a look at the second part, which is that the divine purpose of marriage is also to provide personal fulfillment for husband and wife. First then, marriage is designed by God to provide mutual companionship for husband and wife. God first said in Genesis 1.26, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. We looked at that aspect. But then in Genesis 2.18 he says, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. In other words, this too shows some insight into the personal nature of the Godhead which consists of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, being without a companion is not reflective of or in keeping with who God is. And so he created a need in Adam's nature for a companion. Adam was not born with this need. God created it. That was the naming of the animals. That was what the naming of the animals was all about. To create a need for a companion, and not just any companion, but a companion after his kind, but with characteristics and attributes that would complement him as a male rather than compete with him. Now, friends, it is this inherent need which draws a man to a woman and vice versa. When this need is misdirected in order to be satisfied, it distorts the image of God in man. Again, we'll speak more of this as we proceed in the series of messages. But for now, and dealing with our immediate context, spouses are designed by God to be each other's closest companion and thereby to fulfill a real need in their life. They are to fill a need that no other human being can fill. That was God's original intention, and it still remains true today. But when this close, intimate, no-holds-barred companionship is transferred to someone else than one's spouse, God's divine purpose for marriage is distorted, and husband and wife will not experience true fulfillment as male and female. But secondly, marriage is designed by God to provide mutual support in every area of life. He provided, notice carefully now, a helper suitable for him, or more literally, a helper that corresponds to Adam. That is, someone equal to him in nature, but one who provides something he needs which he cannot provide himself. 
That's why God himself calls himself the helpmate of Israel. He provided help for Israel to fight its enemies when Israel could not provide the help themselves. He became their helpmate. That's exactly what Eve is. A companion helper of the same kind. Eve was his helper, as we mentioned before. This is the Hebrew word Etzel. It's the root meaning for Ebenezer, which means stone of help, and Ezra, which simply means help. Eve then was not Adam's servant. That's the Hebrew word Ebed. He was her, or rather, she was his ally, not his slave. It gives the idea of a strong helper or assistant providing help that the person cannot provide for themselves. In fact, it's similar to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was about to leave, if you recall, he told his disciples that it was better for them that he went away. And he gives the reason. He says that he would send another helper. This is the Greek word parakletos in John 14. Now the word another in this passage is a Greek word which means another of the same kind. There's another Greek word which means another of a different kind. But when Jesus said that he would send another helper, he said I'll send another helper of the same kind, parakletos. It means one who draws near to help. And so the Holy Spirit is divine just as Jesus is. But he has another work of function to perform, one which is absolutely essential to the well-being and personal fulfillment of believers and God's purpose for them. So too is the function of a wife to a husband, an equal companion who provides help, support, and aid for the husband which he needs for personal fulfillment, but which he cannot provide for himself. And that's why I like to describe my wife Nancy as the woman or Isha God graciously gave me, the Ish, to provide me with the help I need, but which I cannot provide for myself. And that so together we may accomplish the work God has called us to do. I need her to do what God wants her to do, even as she needs me to do what God wants her to do. Notice now that once I am married or you are married, I become we. That means God's will for me becomes God's will for us. And so when we be what God intends for us to be, we will do what God intends for us to do, which results in our showing what God is like and our achieving personal fulfillment in our life. Now, however, As far as God's plan is concerned, man's priority is evident throughout Scripture, beginning here in Genesis. Woman was created for him, woman for man, not man for woman. Listen to Paul's words to this effect in 1 Corinthians 11. I quote now from verse 3. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman and God is the head of Christ. Then in verse 7 he says, A man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man, 
For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. End of quote. Now, please listen carefully. Only those who are still living under the Adamic curse or those who dare question the wisdom or deny the sovereignty of God refuse to accept these words as divine truth. And we will elaborate on this a little later on in our series as well. But having stated man's priority in the plan of God, Paul also clearly states that man's need for woman, emphasizing both equality and interdependence in the marriage relationship. Notice what he says in verse 11 of First Corinthians 11. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For, as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. End of quote. The significance of this unique interdependent relationship between husband and wife, between equals, with different functions and responsibilities, is only understood in the context of husband and wife being made one as a reflection of the likeness and nature of God himself. We'll see the practical impact of this as we move further on into our series. But, in addition to God designing marriage as a means of providing companionship and mutual support for husband and wife, as a means whereby they can experience personal fulfillment, marriage is also designed by God to provide sexual pleasure and satisfaction for both parents, or rather, for both partners. Now remember, again I state, we are only laying down, we are only putting down now, explaining the biblical and theological principles at this time. The practical outworking of these divine principles will come on later in the series. Principles first, application next, theology first, living follows. It is vital to understand the principles and the theology if the practice is going to be experienced to its fullest enjoyment. Paul addresses this matter of sexual fulfillment on the part of husband and wife head-on. In fact, for many, it seems to be too head-on, especially women or especially wives. Listen to what the inspired apostle has to say in 1 Corinthians 7, beginning at verse 1, reading from the New Living Translation. Quote, Now, regarding the questions you asked me in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations, end of quote. In other words, it is not good to commit fornication. It is not a proper thing to do to have ex- to have sex outside of marriage. That's what Paul is saying here. Fornication is a sin, no matter how popular it is today in our culture. Paul explains this in verse 2. He says, But because there's so much sexual immorality, that's fornication especially, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. End of quote. Or, to put it very plainly or bluntly, husband and wife are to meet each other's sexual needs on a regular, ongoing basis. 
probably prophetically looking ahead to today's culture, Paul is even more specific. Notice what he says in verse 4. The wife, this is the godly wife, gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. That is, in regards to sexual relations. Again, in plain English, this means that when it comes to satisfying sexual needs, it's the spouse who has the needs who says yes or no, not the one who meets the need. Now do you see why God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways? People do not think along these lines today. But the Apostle Paul drills down even further countering much of the counseling we get from secular sources today. Now, I'm not even going to try to rebuff that stuff here. I'll simply read the authoritative word of God and what is written to all true believers in Christ and those who believe that the Bible is indeed the word of God. Verse 5, Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time, so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again, so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. End of quote. My personal loose translation of this passage puts it this way. Neither spouse is to say no to the other spouse when it comes to sexual needs, unless it is by mutual agreement and only if it's for a spiritual exercise of greater priority. Or to put it another way, you're going to substitute the bedroom for the prayer room. If you do anything else, Paul warns, you could cause the unfulfilled spouse to sin by being satisfied outside the marriage bed. Mind you, and let's be careful here, the apostle is not condoning or encouraging sexual immorality. He's simply stating that Satan could use the lack of sexual fulfillment on the part of a spouse to tempt them to commit sin. Marriage, Paul says, is meant to prevent or at least lessen the possibility of falling prey to such temptations by the evil one. The Bible makes it clear then that sexual relationships between husband and wife is not just for childbearing, but for pleasure and enjoyment as well. And so that's why I like to say on the basis of biblical authority, the best lover is a spirit-filled lover, not a lust-driven one. However, my time is gone for day, and I better stop here. As always, this is Senior Pastor Emeritus Alan Lee saying, Selah, think and act on these things. You have been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship service begins this morning at 11 o'clock in the sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. 
we extend an invitation to you to join us on these occasions. If you would like to contact the church or Pastor Lee, address your letters to Echoes of Calvary, Post Office Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And so we come to an end of this broadcast. I invite you to think about the message this morning. Consider the one who is our Savior and Lord. Grow to be complete in Him. And remember, as echoes from Calvary stir in your heart, keep listening for that shout, Maranatha, the Lord is coming soon. There forevermore to stay. The great commander's promise He will surely come again I am listening every moment For the mighty trumpet sound What a time we'll have together When the saints shall leave the ground And our toiling will be Happen in a moment, Jesus Christ could come again. I am listening every moment for the mighty trumpet sound. What a time we'll have together when the saints shall leave the ground. Christ could come again.